0: wonderful wonderful well i am so excited to invite our guest uh, preacher up here tonight pastor jade along with her husband trent our campus pastors at c3 auckland one of their their largest campus there in that city and uh, they've just become great friends uh, of us at silverwater there's a lot of connections i know some of our people that when they go to new zealand they end up in their church and uh, connect with them and uh, they are just great ministers of the gospel, and uh, I just love their story, and uh, we are really honoured just to have this great woman, this great pastor with us tonight. Can we give a really warm silver water welcome to Pastor Jade as she comes to preach here tonight? Awesome. Amazing to be here. You can take your seats. It's such a great atmosphere in the house tonight. I'm so honored to be here. Um, This place, it really reminds me a lot of uh, our C3 Monaco campus, the the liveliness, the fun, the atmosphere. which is where Trent and I, we pastored there for the past five years. Uh, we've only recently come back into C3 Auckland, our Ellerslie campus, which is our main campus. We came back in about uh, eight months ago, and um, it's been a blessing. It's been a blessing to be in such a great campus. And yeah, as I said, you guys, you're alive, you're on fire, and it's, um, it makes it really easy to be here. It makes it really easy to be here. Um, Nat and Hartley, I want to honor you guys here. You guys are incredible. You know, you are great friends to us. You're encouragers. You always make us feel incredible. And it is like being home. You know, it's like being home here with you. I honor you for what you're doing. You know, I know what it takes to get a campus going. And it's, it's a joy and it's, it's incredible. So you guys are amazing. And Pastor Chris, it is such an honor to be with you here in this incredible place, you know, because of all of your sowing, we're reaping, you know, we're reaping what you have sacrificed and you've sacrificed so much, you and Pastor Phil, we know a little bit of it, but I know that even what we know, it wouldn't even scratch the surface of knowing what you've laid down. So we thank you. I get emotional when I think about you, we look up to you, we respect you and we admire you so much, so much. So Anyway, my name is Jade. I'm the other half of Trent Membry. Um, you guys know him quite well, I believe. He's, he's got serious FOMO. You all know what FOMO is, don't you? He's got serious FOMO not being here. He loves this place. He really loves this place. He loves your pastors. He has a great time when he's here. He's been here a couple of times already. And I believe we've got New Zealanders in the house here. Is that right? Yes, hello, lots of New Zealanders, that's incredible. So I really am home, I really am home. So hey, Trent and I, we've got two little girls, I've got some photos. Of them, I believe, are they gonna come up on the screen? We've got an 11-year-old and a nine-year-old, a which means respected one, or leader in Hawaiian, and Ella, which means most beautiful. Um, This is them, I've been saying we don't tattoo our children. I promise it's temporary ink, but um, they're part Māori and they're in the kapahaka group at their school, which they love and they work really hard at, so um, this is at one of their performances. They're looking absolutely beautiful there. They're incredible. I'm missing them. Ready to see them soon. But hey, I just want to pray before I share my story with you. So why don't we uh, bow our heads. Lord, Father, God, I thank you so much. I thank you so much for the opportunity to be in your house, God. Lord, for the opportunity to share my story. God, I thank you for what you've brought me through. I thank you that you are a marvelous, magnificent, out-of-control, huge God. Lord, that you transform lives, Lord. Lord, I pray you just move through me tonight as I share my story, Lord. We honor you, God. In your mighty name, amen. Amen. So, Pastor Chris, when I first came into C3 Auckland as a 22-year-old girl, I was pregnant. I was pretty lost. I had a toddler in tow. And Pastor Chris was a part of the reason why I decided, yes, I am going to follow Jesus. You know, within a matter of weeks of me coming in and receiving salvation in C3 Church, Pastor Chris came swirling into the place to preach. And she absolutely captivated my heart with her love for Jesus, with her love for the church, for people, and the freedom that she had as she spoke and ministered. You know, I'd grown up in a Pentecostal church that was quite vibrant, but along the road I had shut that down and I had this stereotype that I'd built in my head that Christians were these dull, strict, gray, boring people. And with one fell swoop, Pastor Chris came in and absolutely smashed through that stereotype (laughs) and took me another step deeper into my love affair for Jesus Christ. You know, but in order to be beginning a love affair with Jesus at the age of 22, I had to have been somewhere before that. And that's what I'm here to share with you today. You know, God gives us all a story, every single one of us, and we've got to share our stories. We can't keep them to ourselves. You know, this month, our church has been focused on the theme Search and Rescue. And this theme is so vital to our Christian walk. You know, the Word of God says in Matthew 9, verse 37, that the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. You know, that's us. We have absolutely got to be the workers. You know, the work is to bring people in. That's really it. You know, and, and to do this, we need to activate our mouths. We need to open our mouths and share our stories. You know, and it might be hard to share your story. So if you can't share yours, share his. You know, tell people he's real. Tell people he loves them. You know, I only came in because of people searching for me, for people sharing God with me. I was in the harvest field. I was so ready to be rescued. I was completely at the end of myself, but I didn't know how to make my way into a church. I needed someone to come and share with me. See, I came from a well-off Christian family. My parents had divorced when I was three, each of them had remarried, and they each had a child in their new marriages. My life was great. We lived in the most beautiful suburbs in Auckland. I attended one of the most prestigious private girls' schools, and our family went to one of the biggest, most influential churches in the late 80s and early 90s in our city. That was until it fell apart. And this fall displaced my family when I was about 12 years old and we entered into the wilderness years without Christian fellowship and without United Worship. You know, our family really and truly believed in God, but the value on church, on community, on accountability had diminished, and it led to a complacent attitude towards God. You know, He fit into our lives rather than it being the other way around without our pastors and leaders and fellow Christians sharpening us. You know, God kind of left the family. You know, our parents, my parents stopped attending connect groups. They stopped attending prayer groups. Prayer was no longer the default language in our home. You know, the Bible was there, but it was like a dictionary. It was up on the shelf. It wasn't something that was used daily. And the concept of worship music, being played in a home environment would have just been the most unusual concept to me. You know, don't get me wrong. My parents, they were amazing, beautiful, caring people. They lived on the right side of life. You know, they hung out with Christian friends still. But who knows that we are called to so much more than that? You know, Mark fifteen sixteen gives us the commission to go and share the good news. You know, it doesn't say that we have got to get people across the line. It doesn't say that you've got to get a confession out of them. It doesn't say that they have to agree in that moment with all of your theology. It says to share the good news about Jesus. You know, as I said to earlier, just talk to them about God. But in our house, see, the the habits that spur us on to do just this were gone. And the zeal for God and the evidence of God being real or even necessary went with them. And personally for me, the lack of zeal for God led me further and further away from him until he was a distant notion that had absolutely no impact on the decisions I made or the course that I took in life. You know, God, to me, he was a nice concept for others, but he was completely irrelevant to real life. And this mindset would have a radical impact on my life as I wrestled with the challenges of adolescence. As a teen, I felt disjointed from both my mum and my dad's nuclear families. My sisters both had a mum and a dad. You know, they both fit somewhere and I felt like an orphan from each one. I observed that they were part of a family unit and I felt sort of squeezed in. You know, just just where where it worked as an additional extra. You know, my perceived reality of not fitting into a family unit and not knowing God so well, you know, not knowing who I was in God, that was a double blow of separation. And that led to isolation. And it was not my parents' lack of love. This was a perceived reality. This was my perceived reality. You know, I was surrounded. I was surrounded by people in love. But I was spiritually alone and orphaned. And we're not created for that. You know, we're created to be in relationship with God, and it's only from that relationship with God that our relationship with ourselves and our relationship with others flows. So as a result of this displacement, I arrived at that high school that I talked about earlier, and I fell in with a pretty wild group of girls, you know, these were beautiful, beautiful girls, but they were all, like me, a bit hurt. You know, hurt people seemed to find each other. And we were all a bit weathered by life, and we all seemed to take comfort in the world. And we all had a habit of taking things too far. And it started with boys and booze, as it often does for young teenage girls. You know, I, I was desperate to be wanted. I was desperate to be wanted by Anybody? But I was also a total introvert. I was incredibly, incredibly, like, you have no idea how incredibly shy I was. And I discovered that being drunk was the best way to deal with this problem. You know, when I'd been drinking a lot, I became a different person. I became a person who could command the attention and affection of anybody I wanted to. And I noticed subconsciously how different this was when I was sober, and it began a spiral of substance abuse. You know, I thought I was a normal teen. I thought I was doing normal teen things, but there was absolutely nothing normal about the things that I was doing. You know, drinking every weekend, sleeping with boys, getting high, cutting school. You know, this is not normal behavior. You know, but the problem is that our teens are being sold a lie. They're being marketed a lie that it is normal behavior. You know, and they're being ripped off. You know, we've got to share that this isn't normal, that there's a better way. You know, I became this highly functioning addict, a teenage, highly functioning addict. I was adept at hiding everything from my parents, everything from my teachers. I was smart. I was strong, I could pull off good grades, and I could pull off a perfect attitude in the home. And I loved my home, but I was so addicted to being wanted outside of it. And eventually the need to hide what I was becoming became less and less of a thing that I cared about. I eventually decided it would probably just be easier to drop out of school and move out of home. That way, I could do what I wanted, and it wouldn't be so tiring trying to live this double life. I moved out, I left school, and within a year I was 17. I was toxic, I was broke, I was broken, I was lonely, I was confused, and I was also pregnant. And the boy that I'd been with for the past two years was completely indifferent to the situation. He told me he wanted absolutely nothing to do with it. I remember he dropped me, a 17-year-old girl, off to an abortion clinic. And alone, I went in for the interview. I went in for the subsequent procedure. And then I was picked up again and dropped off at our flat to recover physically and emotionally while my boyfriend and my flatmates went out to party. And I did recover physically, but it would be years before I recovered emotionally from that day. In fact, it was 12 years before I told any of my family what I'd done. Only the people I'd flattered with, and a few of my school friends knew, and they lacked the maturity to empathize or help me. I finally broke. I was completely lost. My boyfriend and I had actually emotionally checked out of that relationship, but I had lost my self-worth to the point where I could not leave. I couldn't leave that relationship or that house. I was finally forced to, though, after another woman moved her belongings into my bedroom. Defeated, I moved home and tried to rebuild myself. You know, God at this point was so non-existent to me that it wouldn't have even occurred to me to pray. At home, I quickly, I tried to um, rebuild myself by enrolling into a makeup course. You know, but as I said, who knows that trouble has a way of finding itself. You know, and I fell in with this group of incredibly wealthy, but incredibly even more than they were wealthy, naughty girls. And I dropped out of makeup school to join their endless party. You know, life became this spinning whirlwind of sex, drugs, house music, rock and roll. I was always hungover. I was always high. I was always numb. You know, I was strung out. But I was also still searching for that place, you know, wanting to be wanting, wanted, wanting to fit somewhere, wanting to be loved. You know, nothing I seemed to do seemed to fill that hole, you know, that hole that only God can fill. You know, eventually I settled on what I figured would be the next best thing. I found a boyfriend who absolutely adored me, but see, he also happened to have hundreds and thousands of dollars worth of a drug that I'd started dabbling with, crystal meth or what I think you know over here, as ice. So I met this man, I went to his house, and I never went home again. In my new life, I was perpetually strung out. But see, because we were dealing to New Zealand celebrities, New Zealand musicians, actors, and elite business people, like I'm talking pilots and surgeons and lawyers and doctors, I thought I was doing just fine. We were absolutely rolling in cash. We had no gang associations we had a beautiful apartment. I looked okay, or so I thought. I was actually death covered in designer clothes and makeup. You know, at this point, my friends and my family were absolutely terrified for me. They had completely lost their grip on me. I had pushed them away. I didn't want anything to do with them, and I had completely lost everything of who I once was. At this time, my substance abuse was absolutely at its worst. I was smoking an unlimited amount of meth each day, and I was staying up for days at a time. I very rarely ate. Even alcohol had become a completely powerless substance to me. I smoked more than a packet of cigarettes a day. I was a walking skeleton. You know, my body was actually showing signs of breaking down. My hair was starting to fall out in clumps. You know, my skin was covered in this downy fur that often happens to people when they have severe eating disorders. My skin was breaking out. It was gray, you know, as the toxins tried to escape me. I was literally falling apart. You know, I was dying. Meanwhile, unbeknownst to me, God was working behind the scenes. He was seeking his lost child. See, my mom and my stepdad in a desperate, desperate, desperate search for help, had drawn back close to God. You know, they'd started attending church again. They'd started attending C3 church in Auckland. You know, they were desperately praying. And my dad and my stepmom, in a desperate search for help, found salvation for the first time. They found Jesus because of what I was going through. You know, both sides of my family, they formed prayer chains all over the world, we later find out. found out. And my mom asked my current pastor, Pastor Dean Rush, who was the youth pastor back then, she she begged him, can you get your girls to text my daughter? Can you get your girls to call my daughter? And I remember getting these crazy text messages in these most bizarre situations from these girls going, hey, how are you? Hey, do you want to come to church? Hey, do you want to hang out? And I'm getting these messages going, what are you talking about? Do you know what I'm doing? Do you know who I am? Like, I'm a monster. You don't want to hang out with me. But these were seeds. You know, these were seeds that these girls were sowing. You know, I didn't reply to them. They could have given up, but they didn't give up. You know, and I've had an opportunity to say thank you to those girls. I've had an opportunity to meet them. You know, their prayers were answered. You know, and in that, I want to encourage you, please don't stop sending those texts. I know sometimes you can feel like an absolute idiot when you're sending these texts and getting the, nah, man, that's a bit weird, and all of that stuff, you know, but keep sending them. You don't know. You know, it was a long time before these girls even heard that I'd made it into recovery, you know, that I was a pastor now. Keep sending those texts. You know, it was some time still before I was set free, but the wheels were in motion So about a year into that relationship with this man, my partner and I had successfully laundered one and a half million dollars worth of crystal meth. And at that point, he decided we needed to dry out. He made plans to take a trip to Brazil for two weeks, but he still had a $200,000 drug deal that he needed to undertake. See, this man lacked any genuine love or care for me. And he left me in charge of completing this deal under the care of one of his minders. And the deal would take an entire week in multiple locations to complete. But it was during this time at one of those locations that I met Trent. And I can't describe the attraction we had for each other. It was like something supernatural. I would almost say that it was supernatural to the point where every single person in that room were commenting on it. It was like the topic of conversation that day. You know, the attraction that I had with Trent, it was enough to leave that man. It was enough to abandon that deal halfway through, which is, by the way, absolute insanity. That's like putting a a death thing on your head. You know, you don't do that. I moved out of the apartment we'd been living in. I gave up the incredible income that I'd been enjoying and the constant supply of drugs that I'd also been enjoying. And I began a love affair with this man. Unfortunately though, Trent was involved in the drug world too. But his was a tougher one. You know, his was tied up with gangs and protocols and loyalties. We ended up broke living in his sister's lounge, still hooked on meth. And once again, I discovered I was pregnant. The difference this time, though, was that there was absolutely no way that I was losing my baby. And when I told Trent, he was 100%, despite the circumstances, assuring and in agreement with me. You know, I managed to wean myself off drugs during my pregnancy, but I did it completely alone. You know, Trent was still deeply entrenched in the drug world, and it wouldn't be for a while after Akela had been born that he escaped. Before he did, though, we moved into this tiny, tiny little unit. You know, and secretly from our families, out of pride and shame, we lived in complete poverty. We lived on one sickness benefit, which in New Zealand is $240 dollars. You know, that was our rent. That was our food. That was our power. That was everything, absolutely everything. You know, and I remember to feed us, I'd go and I'd buy a no-brand packet of pasta and a no-brand packet of margarine, and that would be it. That would be what we would eat all the time. You know, sometimes I'd go to my parents' house and I'd have a meal there, but I was way too ashamed to tell them what we were going through. I was way too ashamed to have them at our house, you know, and I'd never take anything From them either. You know, we lived in this poverty, and we welcomed our baby into our into the world. You know, Trent and I—we were so full of love for each other. We were so full of love for our baby, but we actually had no idea how to escape what we had been living in. We had no idea how to escape this cycle. But about three months after Akela was born, the catalyst for Trent's recovery happened. He was kidnapped for two days at gunpoint. And I, thinking he'd just gone on another bender, moved out. And the reason for this bold move was a certainty that Trent and I were not supposed to be together. Yes, I was sick of his benders. I was sick of him going out and being crazy. But, see, I remember. I remember spending days looking at my baby, reflecting on my childhood, and thinking about what I wanted for her. And I remembered God. I remembered the joy of the days when we went to church, when we had fellowship and connections with beautiful friends. I remembered the lunches. I remembered the after church and the foyers. You know, and I liked those people. And I liked what they carried. You know, some of them were still my parents' friends, and I liked the fruit that I could see of their lives. So I decided that I would try to pray. So tentatively I began. And as I was praying, I asked God, is Trent the man that I'm going to marry? And I so remember just hearing this voice telling me something that was just so nuts and so crazy and so different to anything that I would ever, ever have thought on my own, saying, you're going to marry a man from Christian City Church. That was when my parents were attending. You know, it was the most bizarre thing that had ever happened to me. And it rocked me enough to leave. So as a result of me moving out, Trent returned, and I think you know the story, broken from his ordeal to an empty home. You know, no me, no baby. And of course, he went straight to his dealer, who had nothing. He knocked his dealer out, covered in blood, drove around the city for a few hours, finally in the middle of the night, went to my parents' house, knocked on the door, and begged them for help to escape himself. That was an answered prayer to them. Of course, they said, yes, come in, but they were the last people left who were willing. You know, that was the last time that Trent ever used a substance. He detoxed in their home and they assisted him into rehab. During this time, I stopped using all of the substances that I had left, you know, cigarettes and drinking and all of that sort of stuff. You know, I started learning how to be a mum. I moved into my parents' house and my mum planted this little youth Bible quite close to my bed. And I, yes, go mum, go the mums. You know, and I'd pick up this Bible and I'd just thumb through it and I didn't really understand a lot of what I was reading, but it didn't matter. You know, it brought me so much peace. It brought me so much comfort and I enjoyed the process of just reading God's word. You know, God was relentless in his pursuit and he was wooing me. He was wooing me back in with his love. Now, when Trent came out of rehab, you remember that prayer, I'd either forgotten that or just chosen to disregard it, I actually don't know. But we reunited, and we started our life afresh. But I hadn't forgotten that I was actually really hungry to seek God. And I managed to get my atheist Trent along to a recovery church, which is like an AA or an NA church, and subsequently into an Alpha course, which I believe you guys are doing here. And he met Jesus for himself. Yeah, hello. The next week we attended Christian City Church. We gave our lives and we were baptized within days. See, we were set free. You know, the hooks that the enemy had tried to ensnare us with were completely out. You know, we were in total and complete freedom. After this, we got married. See, hallelujah, God is faithful. I married a man from Christian City Church. Hello. You know, we got jobs. We got our lives right. I wasn't on a benefit anymore. We started tithing in the church. That was pretty wild. (laughs) We had another baby. I was healed from depression. I'd been clinically diagnosed with depression. I was on Prozac. If I missed a day, I was a nightmare. I was an absolute nightmare. But Pastor Phil came over and in one of his meetings. God said, don't take them tomorrow. So I didn't. I never needed to ever again. You know, we were in relationship with God, raising a beautiful family and beginning a journey into leadership in the church. And today we're more in love than ever. We're more in love with each other. We're more in love with God. We're more in love with our family, with our friends, with the church. And we carry a message of hope. You know, God has used us to return so many people to Him. And you know, when God transforms your life, you can run with that thing. You know, I believe that my story is just like your story. It's a weapon. It's sharp in God's belt, but only when it's submitted to Him. You know, what are you doing with your salvation? Please use it. Please use it for people like me that need to come in and receive it as well. You know, God's used Trent and I to reach Over 70 friends and family, we've seen over 70 friends and family come to know Jesus. There's more than that that aren't friends and family. But you know, he's allowed us to have an increased influence. You know, for crying out loud, he's raised us up as pastors in a church. Like that is outrageous. Who would do that other than God, right? You know, he's actually used me and my story to reach women who have come in You know, they trust me because they know that I've gone through things that they've gone through. Because of me sharing my story, they've opened up their hearts to be ministered to and set free. And you know, God wants those people who are going through things, who are hurting, he wants them to come back in because they have a purpose. You see, they can reach people that others can't. You know, they have a unique outreach, just like you and I have an outreach that's unique to each one of us. You know, I want to encourage you all, if you're believing for somebody, don't give up. Don't give up believing it for them. You know, it's not beyond, you know, it's not beyond comprehension that they could come in to church, that they could come and stand right here on this altar and give their lives to Jesus. You know, you might be praying for them next week right here, maybe next year, God's timing, He knows. He knows. You know, those people that you're believing for, they might be going through something like addiction. It might be something way more sinister, and I'm so sorry if it is. You know, but they also might just be living good lives. You know, they might feel like, I don't need Jesus. I've got it all together. You know, I'm providing for myself. I'm fine. But it's all the same to God. If they don't know Jesus, separation is separation. You know, he wants his lost ones back and we've got to care about their eternities. You know, it is the same God that transformed Trent and I's lives that's working right now behind the scenes for you and your loved ones.